Welcome to Beyond the Map, a podcast that looks beyond the obvious to understand the hidden geographies that make our world. I'm Joe Sharp, Professor of Geography and Scotland's Geographer Royal. In 2007, when she was 19, Renee Bach left rural Virginia for the first time to volunteer at a missionary-run orphanage in Jinja, Uganda. This was a transformational experience for her. She wrote on her blog that she loves Africa more than she can put into words and wanted to spend her life feeding the children there. She has said that she was responding to a calling from God that she should return to Jinja to help the Africans suffering from malnourishment. With the support of funds raised by her Christian community, she established the Serving His Children charity, bought a building and started to offer food for children. By the end of the year, she estimated that she was feeding 1,000 children per week. In her blog, written about her experience and to let her supporters back in the US know what she was doing, she claims that her mother brought her very sick child to the Serving His Children Centre because she had heard there was a white doctor there. Bach writes that she could not turn the child away and in her posts describes the different medical procedures that she oversaw, despite having no medical training and not employing a single doctor at that point. In 2011, one-fifth of the 129 children taken in had died. The obvious question, of course, is how could it be that a young American woman with no medical training think that she should be caring for critically ill children in a distant country? Her supporters argue that Bach was simply trying to help out in a place where there was no other help. They argue that it is important that she try to do something in a place of such poverty. But her critics point to the damage her intervention has created. Parents of sick children came to see her, believing that she had medical expertise rather than going to hospitals. Even though there are shortages in hospitals in Uganda, her critics continue, there would at least be trained staff to respond to complications that might arise. We might also reflect upon how easily the image of Bach as a doctor travelled. Even if, as she claims, she did not ever call herself a doctor, locals perceived her as such. Certainly her habit of wearing a white coat and at the very least participating in medical procedures created this sense. But probably more important was that she was a Muzungu, a white woman in a town where numerous US missionaries had set up charities and within a global context where Africa is marked as developing or worse, underdeveloped, a homogenised space awaiting the life-saving interventions of experts from the West. Lawrence Gostin, a medical ethicist from Georgetown University, explains that far from being an exceptional case, Bach's attitude is shared by many Americans who work in developing countries. The American cultural narrative is that these countries are basket cases, he says, so that whatever qualifications they do or do not have, they will still feel that they will be of help. So while the case of René Bach is an extreme one, it is by no means unique. Indeed, this is something I have experienced firsthand. When I was in Zambia in 2009, I met a young American who was visiting. He had been sponsored by a US funding organisation to teach Zambians farming techniques, but it transpired he had no relevant qualifications. And indeed, his one attempt at farming thus far had been unsuccessful because he had believed that peanuts grew on trees and had arranged his farm accordingly. The alternative name for peanuts, groundnuts, that might have been a clue to him here. 
But this is not a simple case of individual actions or even of individual motivations. It is this structural difference that's most important here, a deep geographical difference that overwhelms the good intentions of individual actors. Prima Kwagala, a Ugandan civil rights attorney who is supporting two women seeking justice for the deaths of their children at the heart of the Serving His Children Centre, argue that those who defend Bach imagine a different geography. Imagine, they argue, if a young, untrained Ugandan woman had gone to the US to set up a charity to provide the same kind of support to help poor American children who were not able to access the expensive health services there. She would have been prosecuted, says Kwagala. She would have been behind bars. This, of course, raises really interesting questions. How is it that this particular geography of difference has emerged and why is it being perpetuated? I'm joined today by Emma Maudsley. Emma is Professor of Geography at the University of Cambridge and is Director of the Margaret Anstey Centre for Global Studies at Newnham College. Emma's research addresses the politics of international development and she has particular expertise in the different actors that are involved in delivering international development. Her books include From Recipients to Donors, Emerging Powers and the Changing Development Landscape. I, st I started this this episode thinking about uh, this, what seems like quite a bizarre case of a young woman from America, no medical training, ends up in, uh, in Uganda running a clinic where she more or less starts acting like a doctor. And as the, the Ugandan activist said at the end, can you imagine this if the, if the roles were reversed and uh, you know this was a Ugandan doctor in, a, in America? So clearly we have a, a particular imagined geography of the world that means that places aren't the same and that we aren't expected to behave the same way in each place. So that the, the developing world, the underdeveloped world is seen as literally a different kind of a place to the developed world. Is this something that, this is something that, that appears to be really quite embedded within our culture. Is it something you've experienced in, in practice when you've been working in the field? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've done most of my work in India and I would say that um, where I've really come across it often is students who uh, have or who want to go out and do good things in um, interesting places and places that they think are and are exciting and different. But, you know, I think the first thing I'd say is very often and your Ugandan example is quite an extreme, but very often the impulse is good. And we need to recognise it doesn't come out of a what people understand as a bad place or even a patronising place. But unfortunately, it is really locked into these ideas because maybe we should ask ourselves the question, would you want your school toilet built by a bunch of Ugandan teenagers? I'm going to guess that, you know, the brickwork and the plumbing might not be all they could be. So, uh, or would you want a, um, a lovely Peruvian come over and teach your kids uh, Spanish when they have no degree in teaching or no training? So I don't want to like mock some of, some of that stuff. Some of it is awful, um, unquestionably, and it can end up in a very bad place. But for many ordinary people, what we have to look at is not the impulse, but why they think the world is like that. And I suppose that's 
the question you might be about to ask me more about. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It, it's not it's not something that's done with any malice. And in fact, in, in, in most cases, and, and indeed the case that I started with, the intentions were good. And the sense the sense that that, that story um, provided was well there's they li- they have nothing so me doing something is better than nothing but as the as the Ugandan activist pointed out well they don't have nothing these are not people that are just sitting waiting for us to do something and and I think I think often about my own education about the world and and you know I was a I was a teenager in the 1980s and literally the only images I ever saw of Africa were through Band-Aid and Live Aid. We were being told these were people waiting for us to do something. And so that sense of of where change comes from, I think, is really strongly embedded within geography. Yeah. And I mean, I was also a teenager in the 80s and watching Band-Aid, but um, of course worse. Um, I grew up with a very old-fashioned lovely mother who got me reading Rudyard Kipling and Ryder Haggard and all of these uh, colonially inspired books. And at the time, I, th- I mean, I thought nothing of it. Um, and there's no question, actually, Rudyard Kipling is a very fine writer in many ways. But he was peddling mostly some awful uh, caricatures, stereotypes and so on. And which were disempowering, which were uh, brutally violent in how they projected people around the world and also, above all, our capacity to save them sort of thing. So in many ways, like what's happening today is the sort of the grandchild of that colonial um, fiction that Britain and other countries were doing good in the world. Um, And, you know, I'm just going to say this. Kipling was slightly more complicated in his understanding than is sometimes represented. But that doesn't take away from the fact he was part of a whole colonial enterprise, building the idea that that the majority world was inferior. And one thing that we can trace, and as we, we do in geography, is look at how some things have changed, but some of those um that sense of inferiority and superiority has evolved. And now it's taken on a much more perhaps benign version of your uh, gap year um, teaching English. Um, And there are ways in which you can do that, where the school in Hyderabad is empowered to say, okay, you don't have any teaching qualifications, but you'll be good at conversation with our kids. So where the school is leading it out, um, I think that's great. And you can be in solidarity. But there's an awful lot um, that we know. And it's not just school. I've chosen that. But um, so one of the examples you've asked me for examples is uh, watching uh, overseas diplomats in India saying to their very uh, important peers, using language and body language and verbal language that is eye-poppingly embarrassingly and they seem to be unaware of it I mean it's not every diplomat all of the time but coming out with incredible statements about us teaching them and you can see some Indian official who has uh, you know he he, he can't believe his ears either and is deciding whether to protest or walk away So um, it goes from the full spectrum. You know, it's not just about gap years. This is all the way up to, to say, geopolitics. Yes, and I think I think 
because this form of imagining the world is embedded in in Kipling, in the training that is given to diplomats, in in some of the education that uh, I, I would like to say happened in the past, um, and some of the images that we saw on, on the media, that it, it really does become embedded in the way that that, that we think and that, that we act. And it's interesting you say there has been change, and I think we are beginning to see an awareness of this. And um, I think that one of the, the key moments was that... Um, debate between uh, David Lammy and Stacey Dooley about an image that she'd posted on her Instagram feed of, of herself holding a black child in Africa and and um, David Lammy pointing out that this was reinforcing that very same stereotype about who's who's active, who's who's kind of um, mature and uh, and, uh, and and which figure is is requiring assistance and and that broadening into debate around comic relief and the images that that perpetuated and I think a beginning of change I mean there's 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 a bit of a culture war around this at the moment but it seems there's change and I think at the, at the heart of this perhaps and this is why I was so keen to, to speak to you for this um, this episode is that we're beginning to see different actors emerging in international development so you know the way that I think about International development as a as a kind of idea and a practice, it's you know it merged from the development decade and the in the new um, post war era, and I think a real optimism that things were going to be different. That with you know the end of of colonialism, the end of European dominance, and a, a new American century, that there was a possibility for um, for for the transfer of ideas, the transfer of technology, and that was going to bring a brave new world of of, of development. And um, a number of academics, including ourselves, I think, have become rather uh, sceptical about that. It, 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 it effectively hasn't changed. There's been all sorts of debates about how we get beyond uh, this. Um, but the story thus far has been very Western. It's been about uh, Europe and America transferring their ideas. But increasingly, there's other agents, other agencies, other countries involved in development. And you've done, I know, a lot of work around uh, the role of, of China and Africa and particularly India as a development. Mm. I, I guess conventionally we think of India as a recipient of development, but that now is, is changing. Yeah, and it in fact has been for a very long time. India was providing assistance of ideas and money and uh, practical assistance in the 1950s. It was giving scholarships to Egypt in the early 1950s. So it's not new, but it has really grown. And of course, the big game changer is China. And China also has a long history, even under Chairman Mao in the 50s and 60s, it was doing remarkable things sometimes in Africa, for example. But it too has grown and it's grown. It's all, It's big enough and powerful enough now for the Americans and the West to be sitting up and taking notice. So, yeah, it, it's been fascinating. This is really since the early 2000s. Um, and it's been a game changer for thinking about development and in some ways kind of upsetting this idea that development is the transfer from north to south. So whether you're very critical of it or whether you're very supportive, most analyses of global development have been on that axis of north-south. And most, some people have always been more attentive to what's going on, you know, east-west and, uh, you know, in other directions. But now everybody is. Uh, and it's been very exciting. And one of the things that southern countries, I'm calling them southern countries, these are very 
problematic terms. Yeah. Um, there is no good term, really. There's no term that doesn't have some kind of assumptions behind yes, it. Yes, and... yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, particularly then the, the, the big what were called emerging economies. I've said another problematic <laughs> term because uh, it sounds a bit patronising. But um, so the China, Indias, Brazil, South Africa's, and um, but lots more, Indonesia, Senegal, Chile, Mexico, they've, they've been doing some fantastic work. Um, and as well as being an alternative source of money, of technical know-how, of solidarity, what they say, and to some extent what's true, is that they also bring different ways of doing things and they don't bring that long colonial history. Instead of bringing um, an old-fashioned, uh, evolved colonial mindset, what they say, they turn up and they say, listen, we know what it's like to be at the wrong end of the colonial relationship. We too have been subjugated. We too have freed ourselves. We too then face a world that is consistently still unfairly organised in the interests of the rich and the powerful, most of whom are located in the north. So we are going to act in solidarity. And that's a much, much more attractive message. And it's important. And it, mm. so on the one hand, there's the, the message and the attitude. And then there's the knowledge. So um, I spoke to a guy in the Indian Postal Service years ago, um, and he was great. He was telling me about projects that they were doing in three East African countries helping them deliver the post in informal settlements, through the monsoon, on unpaved roads. And it's the sort of thing that Consignia or <laughs> the, whatever's left of our wonderful postal service really wouldn't be very good at. So the argument was that not only were these countries coming together in a spirit of shared uh, former subjugation, uh, so they could share feelings and not simply kind of rely on, instead of relying on sympathy, they could rely on empathy. Um, but also that they had the practical know-how. And increasingly, if you're China, you had the money. Um, that said, there are some questions to ask as well. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's really interesting. It, absolutely, there's some questions that need asked. And, you know, I've worked in, in Tanzania um, and I, I started working there about 15 years ago. And... Um, was very keen to learn as much as possible about about the country and read a lot about the the friendship, the brotherhood, the the, the supportive relationships at um, Tanzania's independence under um, Julius Nyerere, the the, the first independence um, president, and a great sort of friendship with um, with China, partly because of. I think a determination by Tanzania, like like many countries at the time, of not falling into the Cold War um, rivalry, not following one side or the other, not following either American capitalism and that model of development or Soviet um, communism, because neither seemed particularly attractive. And, and Nureri talked a lot about how patronising it was that each side thought they could tell his country how to develop. And was much more attracted to the more peasant-based agricultural model that was coming out of, of China. But also that the, the Chinese presented themselves very much, as you said, as understanding that process that process of imperialism, not wanting not wanting to replicate it, being part of a of a of a southern 
it, there really was a language of kind of brotherhood. Mm. And there was all sorts of huge investments. Even at that point in Tanzania, there was the, the Tanzam ra Railway that was to connect uh, Tanzania and Zambia um, and was going to transform the, uh, the geography and the economy of, of both countries. And um, initially, when I was in Tanzania, and I suppose it would be about the time you're talking about this, this all taking off, there was great excitement about this renewed investment by China. And, um, you know, the number of roads I saw that were being, that were being um, redeveloped by or, 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 or built by, by Chinese companies or the Chinese government, it was never entirely clear which this was, and, and, and buildings. But laterally, when I went back, people were, were much more wary. And I think it's even fair to say there was the emergence of a kind of racism against Chinese people in, in Tanzania, which I believe is, is replicated in other parts of the, of the continent. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's not new. I mean, so notwithstanding all of this language of brotherhood and friendship, which, which is is real. I mean, I think that that, that has real purchase. Um, th there is still racism on all sides. And some of that, again, is caught up in the colonial project of the way in which, uh, for example, um, Indians, different communities of Indians were inserted into the colonial uh, social system in Africa as small traders or engineers and car mechanics and so on. And often it was divide and rule. And so there's ongoing consequences. Uh, and often, of course, some of the history of uh, in different parts of Africa is extremely um, violent between uh, African Asians and, and so on. So, so there's a bit of that. And then you have ongoing racist attitudes. Um, so um, the, the first independent um, president of Senegal who was a great champion of the Negritude movement, which was to re-seize things black as powerful, beautiful, cultured and so on. He very, um, with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, cheekily suggested that South Indians should join the Negritude movement because of the South Indians, many South Indians are darker than North Indians and North Indians, some North Indians, can be quite racist about colour. And and he was he was making a sharp point that um, racism existed and it wasn't it didn't always follow as it were black white or black brown lines. There were racism, you know, is uh, expressed across the world in different ways. And there've been concerns in China, for example, about very uh, racist attitudes towards um, Africans and lots of lots of work on that. So I don't think we should just say, oh, the Chinese are racist too. You know, I think we have to be careful of saying that. Of course, there's lots of different... There are solidarities, convivialities. People fall in love. People work together. People learn. Um, there's some brilliant um, work on that. Um, but at the same time, it, in some ways, what stays the same is um, Africa becomes a mirror for people, different countries, to reflect their nobleness. So China genuinely was... A kind of contesting both both the Soviets and uh, the West in post-colonial Africa, recently post-colonial Africa, um, and its con contemporary kind of surge of investment and politicking has lots and lots of rationalities, lots of motives, various, just like the West does yeah. in Africa, no different there, and they bring to it 
some uh, often um, different people, governments, agents, businesses, it can be inflected with various degrees of racism and it creates it back and you can get, there was some, there's been some pretty bad examples of um, Chinese nationals being attacked in countries. So I don't want to say it's all around us, no one's particularly guilty, no one's particularly innocent, because that that's just relativising everything away. I think we have to look carefully at where different racist attitudes come from and where different solidarities can arise. Um, but if, if certainly over time, the early optimism that in the early 2000s, China, India, Brazil, South Africa and others, some of that optimism has been tempered. And I think part of the reason for that is actually it's just difficult to do some of it, you know, and that if you're if you become visible because you're the country building that am, then you're the country who's displacing people and you're the people who, you know, so lots of what China does say is really, really welcomed. I mean, people want roads, truthfully. The, you know, there's very few people who don't want a road somewhere in the vicinity, even though it brings mixed blessings, to put it mildly. And China's been good at building roads, but it's also built stadiums. It's kept presidents in power. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's turned up and had barrack-like looking buildings full of Chinese labour. So I think some of it is just about being visible. So in the 1960s, John F. Kennedy announced the development decade. You know, we were going to do it in one decade. Um, it was, you know, crazy optimistic. And I think in some ways, perhaps the Chinese felt like they were going to do the same. And, and both have become bogged down in more complex outcomes. So, it's, yeah, so the ideas, I mean, I, I, I still teach cl a class where I start with you know, words from JFK because it's, it's so easy to become cynical and yet there was great optimism and i think you're right that there was there was there's good intentions um again but again my you know my friends in in tanzania also pointed out the different intentions the different culture and the importance of you know what you've talked about as south south um development cooperation does that do things does it do things differently beyond just the language it's the big question I th so I think it does. But in some ways, what, what it's really done, I think, is open up the marketplace of development. Because it used to be the case that the World Bank and the, uh, the donor countries like the UK, Norway, Netherlands, USA, they had so much power. And so they could enforce an awful lot. So the, the real calls for some cautious <laughs> optimism is that, well, what happens if African communities, municipalities, countries can exercise more choice mm -hmm. and can... Uh, now, this can be done in ways that are very detrimental. You know, the, the you can turn around and evade um, more democratic decisions by turning to X or Y partner. What we mustn't see, I think, is China as the ruthless extractive partner and the USA as the well-meaning angelic partner. This is absolutely not true. Yeah. Both have their interests. So, and neither should we just say, well, come on, African governments, you choose well and it'll all be OK, because African gov governments, are, they sh that burden of responsibility isn't entirely theirs either. We still live in a world that's so unequal. So corporations transferring billions of dollars out of poor countries 
through transfer misinvoicing, through tax evasion, you name it. So, so I don't want to. So one of the sort of simple things is to say African governments now have the choice, and they can they can be then more empowered. And ultimately, that's a, a much better way of looking at it because it's not saying who's going to rescue Africa; it's Africans who will make those decisions. And I'll go along. Uh, that's great, but we can't. We also have to recognise that African governments, individuals, planners, political leaders, they can't make those, they can't save their countries either. If we live in a world where both Chinese finance and British finance are structured in exploitative, extractive and unequal ways. And actually, this is one of the arguments of one of your uh, now sadly, sadly late colleagues in St. Andrews, uh, Ian Taylor, who argued that the danger is that China has simply is occupying the same place as the US once did or France once did. So um, <laughs> I don't want to sit on the fence here. I think the words of brotherhood and solidarity do matter. They mean something. I think the, the knowledge and the, the, uh, the special, the skills that are shared across uh, places can be shared across places like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka can be really important. Um, but I don't think we can uh, be too, um, neither too hypocritical when we criticise what's going wrong, but nor can we be naive about some of the realities of the, the context within which these big, powerful countries and corporations are, are acting. Yes. It's a long answer. Sorry. No, I think, I think <laughs> I, uh, it can't be a simple answer. Um, and... There's so, there, there's so many structural issues as well as kind of the intentions. And I think that's yeah. what makes this such an interesting question, but also such a, a powerful one in terms of where we started in terms of the imagine the imaginary of different parts of the world and how they how they work together. But I think what's kind of what's what's particularly interesting is. Is that the, perhaps because in the last 20 years or so, the the the, the rise of 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 Chinese in investment in in Africa, and it's always presented as 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 investment rather than aid, and it is supposed to be about partnerships. Is it? Or you're yeah. you're 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 looking like you're going to disagree with me. No, so I think that one of the one of the confusions was, and and this is something Deborah Brotigam uh, has brilliantly looked at, is that um, sometimes all Chinese investment was treated as if it as if it was aid, and then it was treated like it was bad aid, um, because it was in fact commercial investment. Mm -hmm. I think when the Chinese do something that isn't straightforward commercial, it, it falls broadly in what has been called development cooperation. Right. The Chinese do actually talk about aid, but in a slightly different way to, say, the British. Um, but some countries like India say, no, we don't do aid at all. So it's it might blur and blend with commercial finance. So it, it is, it's, can be fuzzy and that can make it hard to judge sometimes. But it includes concessional elements. It includes deliberate acts of solidarity mm. and generosity and exchange and so on. But it seems that that's changing the debate in the West as well. And, you know, I... I I, I keep think I keep thinking of of a book that came out in in two thousand and nine, which was hugely influential, um, by the Zambian economist Ambisa Moyo, called Dead Aid. Don't you mean the PwC? You know what? Did, who did she work for? <laughs> it, it, well, she's worked for the World Bank. She's worked for um, I, can't, I I think it was Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I think 
Yeah, everyone sort of says, you know, she's the Zambian economist, and of course she is, and that gives her a very particular and important voice. But I think the Goldman Sachs Zambian economist is just as important. I was going to come round to that, but you, you, you've rather you've rather taken the wind out of my sails. But <laughs> sorry, but uh, and, but and also one of the editions of her book had a had a, a preface from uh, the historian Niall Ferguson, mm. the great celebrator of empire, who. Um, talked about Dambisa Moyo as the voice of Africa, which I think is, is is deeply problematic. Nevertheless, the point that I was going to make about that book, because I think it's a really, however weary I am of, of her voice, you know, she, she, she asks what at that point no one was willing to ask, because the end of the 20th century, we had the Millennium Development Goals and then the Sustainable Development Goals. We had the agreement in the UK across political parties that we would stick to our development commitments um, to the extent that some people started talking about development as being post-political, that it was something that um, we would all just agree was a good thing. I get very, very nervous when someone tells me something is post-political, I think, just by definition. It's like when someone tells me something is common sense. Mm -hmm. I, that sets off all my alarm bells. And so there was a sense that we all kind of knew what what we were doing and why we were doing it. Um, and again, it was all done for the right reasons. But she came along and said, we've got to stop with aid. And I think she would still allow for kind of um, exceptional moments of humanitarian assistance, but she feared that a dependence on on aid through these big structures, through the you know through the World Bank, through DFID, through the um, through, through government transfers and so forth, was um, basically anti -de anti democratic for, for for Africans in their own in their own countries because it was now these big um, agencies setting the agenda. It was maybe, and she, she she talked famously about her voice not being able to compete with the guitar, by which she meant, <laughs> you know, she couldn't take on um, Live Aid and Band Aid, and, and someone else called her the anti Bono. Um, that it was it was increasingly celebrities um, from the West who were setting the agenda. I mean, who, you know, who's to say that that Bono or Bob Del Bel Bob I can't even say his name? Who's to say that Bono and and um, Bob Geldof? know anything about development and yet they had become really influential voices um, in the field. So she was she was arguing we got to stop this and she really appeared to look to China for the way to do this, which is why I'd kind of started that. And I think as a I don't know whether it's as a result of the debates that were growing around about that time, seeing the influence of China, maybe some anxieties around the geopolitical impacts of China being so successful, being welcomed as a, a partner of being able to effectively use an, an argument of not being not following a colonial heritage, that it seems that that development from the West is also changing. That the the agents, the actors within, uh, you know, Aidland um, are 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 quite are quite different now from maybe twenty years ago, thirty years ago. And again, this is something you've done quite a lot of work on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. So Dambisha Boyo's book uh, was really interesting. And, you know, hats off to her. She writes a lot better than most academics. And there's a reason she was, you know, got a lot more sales than uh, certainly I ever have. Uh, so and, you know, and the funny thing is, actually, of course, she was um, capturing a lot of things that critics of aid said, myself included, and you too, 
we many of us would agree that there's many problems with aid in terms of dependency and and lots of other things. So I found myself reading that book, agreeing with some, not all, but most of her critiques of aid, where I didn't agree was with her solutions. And I think um, so. She, in essence, was saying, "Let let let's let capitalism get on with it." Yeah. Capitalism as it exists today. This was very neoliberal capitalism. And capitalism as it, what she argued was capitalism as it exists everywhere else in the world. Yeah. Why are we treating Africa yeah. as a special case, as a case that you know needs to be protected? Yeah. L- let it flourish the way that. And this is this is why her background does matter. <laughs> it does indeed. So. Um, and so, and she saw China as being an example of that willingness to and, and you know innovate, to take risks, to build roads. To you know, she saw China as a potential capitalist champion in in many parts of Africa. And I think, you know, there she again, she was she was right that you know Chinese firms were willing to uh, take bigger risks now, partly because they had state backing, but they could do that. I think some of the geopolitics were interesting because this was for the before the election of President Xi, and President Xi has taken a much more, uh, I think, openly competitive and aggressive geopolitical line, and has been more than matched by the idiocy of um, various American presidents and British prime ministers who've been willing to up the ante. So you know that's part of the geopolitics. So the fact the book came out in two thousand and nine is is important. The problem I think with Dambisha Moyo's argument, um, and this is something I am simply repeating, you know, the wonderful, wonderful theorists over the many, many years who have said this for Latin America, for uh, Asia, for Africa and elsewhere, is that um, capitalism, this and particularly this form of capitalism, is just deeply unfair. It's unfair to ordinary workers in Britain, in Fife and elsewhere, and it's certainly unfair to whole countries that were colonised. And to this day, we have economic structures that are not an even playing field. So, for example, um, the the way in which um, uh, tax evasion is, is, if it's not actively sanctioned, it's overlooked. And if it's not overlooked, we just take away all of our uh, kind of ability to to do much about it. We cut back on all of those um, bodies that ought to be trying to ensure that people pay their tax, like um, (laughs) certain rock stars that may have been mentioned. Um, So, um, you know, in a country where you depend primarily for um, copper or oil or, or the people who get diamonds, some things have been done about this. It's not all black and white, is it? I mean, there there have been efforts made on blood diamonds and other things. But basically, all around the world, the sort of if we just left things to capitalism, well, it's not looking great, is it? Not environmentally, not in terms of equality, not in terms of the sort of quality of life. So we need to think things through differently. And it's bad enough in Cambridge. Uh, It's terrible in Malawi. And uh, and so that's my problem with Dambisha Moyo's argument is to, to to say that say that the raw, unbridled, creative powers of capitalism are going to save uh, and ultimately lead to development is in, in a context where this is clearly not true. It seems is it naive or is it self-serving? And yet that's the direction of travel mm. of 
Aidland of the, the these kind of org, the, the 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 kind of key players, or yeah. you know, the development industry as she as she talks about it. It's not that the development industry has has dissipated. It's just different different interests have 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 taken over, and it and we seem to be moving towards a financialization of development and increasing. I mean, they are. Our own government is talking about increasingly about bringing the private sector into development, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's, it's projects or even academic research, we're, we're expected to think about where the private sector might fit in. And this concept of, of making countries and communities bankable, investable. Uh, a term that you've used in your in your research. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to say I don't think the private sector is necessarily the enemy. You know, I think you can build uh, a brilliant fish canning factory with unionised labour, good jobs. You know, you can build where it can export um, freely without tariffs into the UK. You know, uh, we could reform the tomato sector in Ghana. So that um, at the moment, what's happening is you know, subsidies are being collapsed for tomato farmers. They are flooding north for work. They're going into Italy. They're working in terrible conditions. And Italy is exporting its tomatoes to Ghana in tins. I mean, it, you, you couldn't make it up, right? It's terrible. So what we could do is make a m much more fair private sector. I'm not against private sector development per se. I'm against the sort of private sector that is being envisaged in a world without labour rights and protection um, and in which um, you're, you're inserted, you know, the European Union can put up tariffs against uh, manufactured products or, you know, kind of tins of stuff coming in. Yeah. So um, anything with value added. Um, so it's the hypocrisy of the way in which the private sector is being talked about and discussed. But like you said, I mean, all of this has meant that... Um, what we used to think of as like who did development, who was the development industry? It was Oxfam and it was the World Bank and it was DFID and they did development. Um, but it's all changed now. Uh, well, not all changed. That's not wrong. That's not true. So first of all, you've got lots, more, lots, much. you've got MasterCard um, the uh, or uh, the Gates Foundation, you know, a, a philanthropic capitalist foundation or a uh, company. You've got they have much, much more power in setting development agendas these days and, and running things. They're not just being they're not just working in partnership with the UN or the World Bank. They're running them. Um, maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but well, not I, much. I'm not sure it is. I mean, because the, the, the most one of the most recent and, and kind of. Um, I want to say I would want to say shocking, but maybe I'll say prominent examples is of um, of the Oxford vaccine uh, production. Mm. The, that um, the, their initial ambition was to make it freely available, make the uh, inter intellectual property or, or whatever you, however you call it when you're you're talking about vaccines, available to all, so it could be made in country. It could mm. it, it was it was a cheap uh, cheaper alternative than the RNA, RNA viruses, mm. and it was my my understanding is that it was the Gates Foundation that convinced them that they had to use a capitalist model of distribution, and it was the Gates Foundation. That that basically pressured them into working with AstraZeneca. That's um, interesting. Yeah, and of of course it it um it was still produced at a lower price than others, but it was it was being distributed centrally, and I know that caused problems in in particular parts of Africa where there was anxiety about you know where where drugs were coming from and and and, and so forth, and it also meant of course that. Um, 
African countries were very far down the pecking order in terms of, of when supply was getting to them. Not at all... I mean, on the one hand, you say, yes, this is philanthropy because the Gates Foundation supported uh, a lot of the production distribution, but there was another way of doing it, which, you know, this, again, it comes back to the, the structures necessarily rather than the intention. That kind of forced a different model of production than than the original in intention of the vaccine providers. Yeah, so I mean, I know that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is a very interesting story and, and there is much more to it than the headlines show. But fundamentally, as I understand it, the Oxford, Oxford University were trying to drive a much more accessible and, and um, model. And they partly succeeded. You know, they created a vaccine that didn't need cold storage, for example. And I don't know enough about it. Did, they, did you need to have AstraZeneca or, or a commercial company on board to move it to scale? I'm not quite sure. But I do know that the Gates Foundation has consistently championed, powerfully championed, more capitalist and uh, profitable ways of uh, manufacturing and distributing medicine. It's largely, I think, I think, think some things have changed, been against generics and so on. Mm. And it's got, you know, a model that um, has been overly influential in the world of global health. And I think, you know, we can, we, you, uh, an occupational hazard for you and me is that we sit here and we discuss the world's woes and it's hard not to be very depressed at the end of a day at work. Um, and, there are reasons why that is, but I also think that one of the useful and important things that we should do as teachers and as scholars is say there are alternatives. Yeah. So we're not trapped in this model. So there's all sorts of ways that we could raise money. We could close down transfer misinvoicing of corporations. We could work much, much harder at tax evasion in our own country and globally. We could make uh, the terms of trade more fair for countries. We could um, uh, use uh, a Tobin tax on financial, that sort of thing yeah. on, on financial exchanges to fund uh, vaccines. We could commit to um, publicly accessible universal rights to water, sanitation, education and health. And to start off with, you know, in this, I don't want to suggest a utopia. Utopias are dangerous places. They rapidly get grabbed by somebody. But, you know, there are the, some of the things we work on is what we could do. And I suppose in my academic career, I'm increasingly thinking it's important not to um, think of it in utopian terms. But, and lot, like lots and lots of geographers and others working around me, to look at things that work to fight and to be involved. And there's wonderful academic colleagues all around the UK and beyond who are working on things like affordable housing, different sorts of design, thinking about uh, energy, degrowth, which is a very interesting one. But we're told over and over again by someone, you know, perhaps uh, like Danby Samoyo and many more, that, that it's a, the choice is, you know, kind of unrestrained markets or, you know, the disasters of state-led this that or the other but that's not the choice you know we do have other options in front of us yes we do and but I guess my the reason that I interrupted you there earlier sorry was that um I, I guess I'm I am anxious about this shift towards the market yeah. you're absolutely right that there's all sorts of possibilities with um the kind of <laughs> ethical investment that you were talking about and um 
but not by J.P. Morgan. Well, that's yeah. that's the problem. I mean, it's this idea of shifting to. I mean, I guess I kind of held on to the to the idea that when it's state led, I'm, I'm kind of old fashioned thinking that there's, you know, the state should be doing things and can do things. That um, when it was state led, the, there is a, a more of an opportunity to have particular outcomes privileged and prioritised, workers' rights. Mm you know, a, 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 a right to clean water, gender equality, these sorts of things. But if we're moving towards more of a, a financial model, as you say, making places bankable, investable, you know, that this is about you know, maybe minimising the risk for investment to bring in the energy that... that um, the private sector can bring that perhaps uh, is missing from development, bringing in the, the amount of capital that's required to have these kind of transformational um, uh, economies and, and societies. What is the incentive for companies to prioritise these things? Mm. Um, and if, you know, if, if, if states have failed to do it, what's the, what's the chance of, of, the, of the market yeah, delivering them because they they certainly haven't haven't delivered them in my lifetime in my country. I, you know, I was you know, I, Thames Water. I mean, <laughs> Thames Water is a financialized company. It is not delivering very much that is good. Um, it's taking a lot of money out and giving it to its shareholders. It's yes. not investing in critical infrastructure and it's pouring sewage into our systems. And it keeps saying, "Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We'll yeah, we'll do something about it," but it's not. So this. So to, you know, we're, we're talking about some of my work on financialization and development. So the development industry is increasingly working. It's not just privatizing or working with markets, but the development industry is increasingly trying to court private capital. So we're talking about the development industry trying to get BlackRock, for example, um, to invest in poor countries and poor places and with poor you know, people. And um, and the argument is that that what they need is money. They need they need investment. They need someone to build the canning factory. Let's say let's return to our fish canning factory. And so now but the difference is is when the state builds or supports a fish canning factory, which is like Finland did with Nokia. <laughs> you know this isn't what we you know this is how as Harjun Chang famously argues. You know the. Western states supported their infant industries until they grew and then flourished. So Finland did massively well out of Nokia, but it was this, it was it started with state financing. So imagine state financing helps an in, infant industry, a canning factory. It's nothing overly fancy, but it provides jobs, it provides profits, and those profits could get taxed and they go into the local schooling system and you name it. But when it's a BlackRock or a secret consortium of investment companies, including possibly one that has my pension in its hands, where, what their interest in that canning factory is not developmental. They might have to meet basic rules, which I have to say are easily evaded. But even if they meet the basic rules, their fundamental goal is to increase shareholder value, is to increase the rent they can extract from it, is to take as much out of it. It's like student housing it's like uh, you know some of our hospitals and development finances, uh, you know PFIs, and that's not going to work for developments. That is not a long-term proposition. Sure, you've got a canning factory, but if all your job is to extract the maximum rent from it or to 
upscale its shareholder value and trade it on to the next investment company. You know, I don't know how anyone can treat that as a good model. So I am worried, you're right, um, about this new turn to the idea that what's going to rescue uh, the majority world is more finance. And that's what uh, something called the Sustainable Development Goals Finance Gap is all about. So the UN and everyone else is telling us we need to turn the taps on. We need more private finance because, you know, foreign aid is only ever going to be a, a drop in the ocean. So what do we need? We need trillions and trillions from um, these big financial companies. The problem with that is it, it's all like turning the tap on in the bath. But if the bath's got a massive hole in it and that hole is tax evasion, transfer, misinvoicing and corruption and other things, and you're not fixing the hole in the bath, you know, pouring in more isn't going to happen. And to be honest, it's not even actually all of these big companies, the, the amount of private finance that's come in to invest in development in, in poorer parts of the world isn't actually happening very much because the private companies are looking and they're saying, no, this is this is too risky. So so the model is broken at different choke points. Um, and uh, I would much rather us as a as a as a world patch up the bath. And, and what's exciting about this idea is that this matters for a British citizen as much as it matters for a Zambian citizen. So your ordinary British citizen at the moment is being cheated um, by the massive outflow of, of uh, what should be paid as tax and what should be, we know, we know about these companies who pay, for example, nothing in tax. Um, I, I suppose I'd better not name them, but we know who they are. So, so this is a, and what's exciting about this idea, and it comes right back to this idea of development imaginaries and solidarity and who, who cares for who and who thinks who needs helping and saving, is I love the idea that some of the solutions for the Zambians are some of the same solutions for the British. Um, and, and we'd all have more public goods and the opportunity for well-being in a world where we weren't so unequal and uh, that inequality wasn't being rewarded by a development industry that's actually trying to, to <laughs> it seems to accelerate that inequality through financial instruments rather than uh, slow it down. What a brilliant place to stop. 